You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Vineyard Church. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to everyone on the live stream as well. We're so thankful that you're with us, and as always, we are really excited to be together. (laughs) My name is Natalie, and this is Jeff, and we are both pastors here at the Vineyard, and we're married. Bonus. It's really great. (laughs) We pastor together. We live together. We parent together, and we preach together. (laughs) We spend a lot of time together. This is what we do. We live together a lot. Yeah. (laughs) We co-preach a few times each year, and it's always a lot of fun because we love this church. We love each other, and we love the Bible. We are in the middle of a series called, Do You Believe in Aliens? (laughs) Right? (laughs) We're not not discussing alien life force. Okay. Not much. Not much, but a little. But in the Super Bowl, there were like tons of alien commercials in the Super Bowl. I don't know if anybody watched. It feels like we're ahead ahead of the curve. Yeah. And if you're from Kansas City like we are, it was kind of a good game. It was a great game. It depends. I realize it depends where your allegiance fall, but like we moved from Kansas City, so I don't know. It was kind of a thing. It was a thing. But okay, listen, it's a play on words, okay? Do you believe in aliens? It's a play on words because we're studying 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter, Christians are called foreigners or aliens in this land because once we decide to follow Jesus, our lives are designed to look differently compared to the world around us. But we, of course, we have like CIA officers and NSA officers that we're connected to at a personal level. So I'm always asking them what their stance is on aliens. And I found out recently that there's a a whole conspiracy theory. It started in the 70s, which doesn't add to its credibility, in my opinion. But in Dulce, New Mexico, where Colorado and New Mexico meet, there's like a conspiracy that underground, there's a jointly operated base between humans and a specific species of gray aliens. You can look it up. I'm not saying it's real, but the conspiracy is real. Like, people actually believe that there's a joint operational base underground with gray aliens, which are different than green aliens, apparently. Listen, weird stuff, okay? Really weird. Weird 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 stuff. The world is full of weird (laughs) things. Things. You thought I was going to say people, but weird things. (laughs) Again, but this, this series isn't about whether we believe in, like, green aliens or gray aliens or those things that beam us up to spaceships or whatever. It's a play on words because we are called to live like sojourners or temporary residents on this earth because we belong to heaven and we belong with God. In week one, Jeff talked about a personal call to be holy, which simply means set apart. And our lives of following God are supposed to look a bit different. Then last week, Matt followed up with with how we as a community are also called to be set apart. That in Christ, we belong to God and we belong to each other as the family of God. Today's scripture picks up where Matt left off, and it's, it's a challenging passage. It's the kind of scripture that you either try to ignore or simply rush past to the next paragraph because it's harder to understand. There are passages in the Bible that need our brains, and this is good. Turn brains on. We gotta, we're going to get into it. Okay, it's important for us to approach scripture with humility and understanding. Whenever we come to a challenging text, there are three things that you have to remember. 
observe, interpret, and apply. First, observe and pay attention to what you're reading. Don't skim past it. Don't ignore it. But you also need to be aware of your own bias because we can all come into reading it with presuppositions that can impact how we read the scriptures. Next, you interpret the scripture, and sometimes you need outside help. You need a commentary or some extra research because this entire Bible wasn't written to an American audience in the 21st century. It wasn't. It was written to, in a specific context, in a specific time, to a specific people. And what's hard for us to understand was easy for them. So before navigating hard passages, you want to know what it meant for the original reader. After this work, you can then apply it to your own life. And it's when we skip these first steps that we get ourselves into trouble or we could even teach some really inappropriate things. And when you're studying scripture and preparing to preach, like you realize most of scripture is easy to understand and apply at face value. But these three steps, observe, interpret, and apply, are vital when you're dealing with difficult passages. And so with this in mind, I want to provide some context about the world of First Peter so that we can kind of have the backdrop of their lives in our minds and in our hearts when we approach the scripture this morning. For one, you have to realize that almost every Christian was either under threat of persecution or was actually being persecuted at the time of this letter. There was a guy by the name of Nero. He was the emperor of Rome, and he was brutal when it came to killing Christians. Thousands and thousands of Christians were being martyred, martyred throughout the kingdom. They were, being, uh, they were forced to fight wild animals, and sometimes they even ran out of wood to crucify these new believers on. And at that time, they would actually put them on a stake and light them on fire to add light to their special gardens throughout the empire. I mean, it was an incredibly difficult time to be a Christian, Nero was a wicked man. And in addition to that, about 25 to 33% of the entire Roman Empire were enslaved. And so, I mean, if you imagine a room this size just for perspective, right, it would be like this whole section, right? It is a, a very, very large percentage of people who were living as slaves. And in the scripture, we're going to read the word slavery today. And I have found that because our country has a horrible history of buying and selling Africans for slave labor, when we approach passages with the word slavery, we can get very confused about what we're reading, but we don't want to think so much. This is where we have to manage some of our own anxiety and presuppositions about the scripture, because we don't want to think so much about the American slave trade when we read 1 Peter. I mean, all slavery is bad slavery. But the Roman slavery had very little to do with race, and it had almost everything to do with your socioeconomic standing. And we'll talk more about that as we get into the scripture. And finally, being a woman was really hard in the Roman Empire. Men and women would have never shared equality like this, standing on the same stage speaking to an audience. It never would have happened. Women were forced to worship their husband's God, do whatever he said, and they were treated more like property than they were co-laborers. 
And on top of all of that, you also have to realize that Peter didn't write like we write today. I mean, right now, all of my kids, they're in elementary and middle school, and they're being taught how to write an essay. You know, you have an introduction with a thesis, a body, and a conclusion, and it's all linear thought from point A to point B. But Peter didn't write like this. He didn't care. It turns out, again, Peter wasn't writing to the American church, and he wasn't thinking about Vineyard Church of the Rockies when he penned this letter. He was a Jewish man. And Western writers and Jewish writers, they wrote differently. In this passage, it's not really formed like a linear path from point A to point B. It's more formed like an hourglass. So imagine Peter writing this letter, and he's like, I'm going to start with a hard topic. I'm going to introduce an even harder topic, and then right in the middle, I'm going to talk about Jesus before I talk about another hard topic and another hard topic after that. He was writing this like an hourglass. And I love the way that he wrote it because in the midst of hard conversations, we always need to remember that it's Christ who is at the center. Jesus informs everything. He is at the center of this hourglass. To help us understand this passage, let's start by reading the center of the hourglass. We're going to start and finish with Jesus so that everything else makes sense. Look at 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. It says this, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is our example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. When in doubt, remember that Jesus is always at the center. He's at the center of our lives He's the central message of the scriptures. And if there's anything that you don't understand, always come back to Jesus. He is our example. He suffered even when he wasn't deserving. He never sinned. He never deceived, never deserved death. Yet he still took our sins upon himself, was nailed to the cross. He took our sins to the grave so that we can receive eternal life because because his, of his wounds, you are healed. And even if you wander, you can always come back to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Jesus is our suffering servant. If you've never given your life to Christ or if you've never heard the story, this is where it all begins. Jesus died to make all things right, and that includes your heart, your soul, and your life. Even though Jesus never sinned, he took all sin upon himself so that we could be set free. Later in our service, if you're ready to give your life to Christ for the very first time, we'll give you a chance to do that this morning because it all starts with Jesus, our suffering servant. And it's in the context of suffering and corrupt leaders and slave owners 
and even horrible spouses, as we'll read in 1 Peter. There's a lot about bad spouses in this text. That we remember that Jesus is at the center of the hourglass. That's what we have to remember as we read this passage. And because Christ suffered to set us free, then we can begin to ask the more difficult questions like, how then am I supposed to live? If he is my suffering servant, how then am I called to live? So with his suffering in mind, let's look at the first topic Peter talked about. And remember the hourglass, right? We started at the center, now we're going to the very first topic. The first topic is government. It was government and authority. As aliens in this land, and in light of the fact that we have given our lives to a suffering servant, we are called to respond and engage with authority in very peculiar ways. And context is key. So remember that Christians were being persecuted and killed all over the Roman Empire, and this was written to them in the midst of this incredible suffering. Peter wrote to these believers, and he said the crazy and wild things, submit to and respect and honor the authority placed over you. I mean, imagine reading that for the first time as you walk down the road to your house church and you see your cousin being crucified on the road, and then reading that letter. Imagine the tension you would have felt knowing that Peter wrote you this letter, but he was also the guy who in Acts 4 looked at the authority figures of his day and said, no, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to follow God. I mean, there's tension around this passage and tension around this scripture, but I want to point out, I want to point out to you this morning that nowhere in this text can you read that you have to either revolt Or like run for the hills and create a holy huddle where you can kind of lick your wounds and wait for the persecution to pass. Neither one of those are options. Holy huddles aren't the answer, but also even though Rage Against the Machine was like a really popular band in the late 90s, it's not a kingdom value. It's not not a kingdom value. And look, I've poked and I've teased on more than one occasion about the upcoming elections, but again, I just want to remind you that people are going to lose their minds in the coming months. You don't even have to be prophetic to know that. Just based on the wisdom that God has given to me, I can tell you it's going to get wild. People are going to act really strange. But again, we are called to live differently than the world around us. We're called to be like aliens in this land. We're called to something different because at the center of the hourglass and the center of our lives and the center of this community, we have a suffering servant who took on all the brokenness and all the pain of the world and promised that through his suffering on the cross, he would make all things right. And because of that, we can have a different kind of hope and a different kind of faith and a different kind of love, even when it costs us, even when it costs us pain, we can still have that different kind of hope. Next. Peter writes... That's not hard enough, right? Like, there's more. He piles it on. Just wait. (laughs) Peter writes about a really hard topic for our culture and our country. He talks about being a slave. First, it's authority figures. Even if they persecute you, and the second topic is slavery. Look at verse 18. And remember, there is context here that's important to understand. Verse 18 says this. You who are slaves must submit 
to your masters with all respect. Peter goes on to say that it that it, if they're kind or cruel, either way, we can honor God through service. And of course, slavery is wrong. And racism is evil. We're all created in the image of God. And any opposition, because of the color of skin, is demonic. Always has been and always will be. And unfortunately, American history is filled with stories of slave owners who used this passage to abuse our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I realize that even saying the word slavery out loud during Black History Month means we could be misunderstood. So that's why I want to say it very clearly. It was wrong then, and it's still wrong today. What's different is that Peter wasn't thinking about American history when he wrote this letter. We sometimes act like history starts and stops with the United States of America. Right. Ron Swanson. But it doesn't. History started in 1776. It did not stop and start with the United States. She's the serious one. I'm like the the person in the background throwing Cracker Jacks. I don't actually believe that. That's true. Slavery was everywhere in the Roman Empire, and we have to sometimes think like a first century Christian to really understand what's being said in the scripture. A third of the Roman Empire would have fallen into this category of slaves, and the word doesn't actually mean what you think it means. The word, me, the word slaves is best translated as servant. It's from this Greek word oikos, and it's the same word Jesus used when teaching his disciples that you can't serve both God and money because they both demand your heart. If you just interject with a quick illustration, this, mm-hmm. this Greek word oikos right? It's, it's a lot more like the show Downton Abbey than it is the, the film and biopic Harriet Tubman, right? Peter's writing this letter, and there's this general understanding of what servanthood or slavery was like in first century AD. I mean, Harriet, she's a hero, and she rescued people from the South to find freedom in the North, but in Downton Abbey, it's more of a class system, And it created this division based on socioeconomic standing, which still wasn't great. It still created the haves versus the have-nots. And in a scenario like that, you could really be taken advantage of. But that's a closer representation to what Peter's writing about in 1 Peter than maybe what you would watch from Harriet and and your understanding of American slavery. Yeah. And and what's interesting is that Peter isn't too focused on dismantling social structures in this letter. Peter is writing a letter to church plants in hostile territory where if the early Christians decided to revolt, everyone would get killed or go to jail. If the servants went to the authority figure to explain unfair treatment, they could have been martyred. So Peter is writing as a pastor, helping these early believers to keep their faith in Jesus, no matter the circumstances, because if they kept their life and their faith, the gospel would be spread across the land. It's a hard passage to understand, but one of the takeaways for us that we can boil this down to is this. When people take advantage of you, because they will, how do you respond Not every teacher or professor is a Christian. Not every boss will understand your priorities. And some might even leverage their power against you. 
Now, thankfully, we have some ways of seeking justice that Peter didn't have. But in those moments, how can you demonstrate Christ and allow your faith to inform your actions? If your first response is to like rage against the machine or to power up and get revenge, then we need to pause and read the center of this hourglass again because Christ is our example. The suffering servant who took on all of the sin upon himself so that we could be made free. The next part of the passage is a little easier, but it still requires a fair amount of extra work. So Peter, again, he's not writing in this linear path. It's an hourglass, but now we're on the tail end of the hourglass. And he started with authority and government. Then he talked about slavery and servanthood. And now he's talking about spouses, which is a little ironic because I'm standing on stage with my wife. But I can tell you, we love each other deeply. And so we can navigate this scripture together. Peter first talks to wives addressing husbands, and then he talks to husbands addressing their wives. And again, this is one of those passages where you need to be aware of your own presuppositions because these are the types of scriptures that lead to misunderstanding or poor preaching or the hot word of the generation, deconstruction of your faith because you run across passages like this and you don't know what to do. We're in chapter 3 now of 1 Peter, and I'm going to start in verse One, Peter starts by talking to wives. He says, In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. And like I said, it's a little awkward to read out loud as you stand next to your wife. Because sometimes this passage is actually used against women. But that's not what this passage means in this part of Scripture. There's a really important part of of understanding that you have to know. And first and foremost, it's that Peter wasn't talking to married couples who were both following the Lord. That's not who he's addressing in this passage. Peter is writing to women who have given their lives to Christ before their husbands have become believers. And this is important to know because it changes how you begin to read it. Remember, first century Asia Minor, everyone in the family was forced to do what the father said. And this included your allegiance to his God, even if it was an idol in a pagan temple. And so women who became believers, they were stuck between a rock and a hard place in kind of this no-win situation where they're asking themselves, do I leave my husband so that I don't worship an idol, or do I stay married, but then I kind of secretly worship Jesus when I attend his pagan temple? It's kind of a no-win situation for early believers who were women. And it was even more complicated because tons and tons of the early followers of Christ were women. And they were living in a place of hostility in terms of the Roman Empire, but now they were also living in a place of hostility within their own homes. It was difficult to be a Christian woman in first century AD. Yeah, in a lot of ways, this is exactly what's happening in Iran right now. Iran has one of the quickest growing churches in the world, and it's primarily being led by Persian women who've encountered the love of Jesus. Peter might say the same thing to them today because in certain cultures where Sharia law is in effect, it can be dangerous to be a woman 
and even and especially a Christian. But because context is key, Peter would probably write different things to different cultures because they're experiencing different hardships. Exactly. So just a quick summary, because again, 1 Peter 3 is kind of challenging. I know you've had to turn your brains on for a long time, just a little bit longer, right? But a quick summary, 1 Peter addressed women married to unbelieving men, but now he's going to change the tone a little bit, and he's going to begin speaking to men, but men married to believers, Okay, it's a different kind of address. And we know this because the letter was circulating around church plants. It was written to believers in the first place. And second, as you read the full passage, it does make itself pretty clear. It kind of interprets itself. So verse 7 is where we're going to pick up. And just again, kind of brace for impact. I'm bracing for impact because I'm standing next to my wife. This one will make your eye twitch just a little bit. Okay, but hang with us as we explain it. He's now speaking to husbands. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. We could do an arm wrestling contest on the podium right now. I work out. (laughs) No. Listen, there's a lot of potential responses in the room when you first hear this passage. There's a lot of responses in the room going on right now in your mind. Some of us are focused on the whole, husbands, honor your wives, otherwise your prayers will be hindered. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I don't want to see any elbows go across the room, but this is a kind of a big deal. This is a big deal. Men, somehow, in some way, loving your wife is connected to answered prayer. And some of you are hyper-focused on that. And I realize that that others of you are focused on the other part, the part that makes me create a little distance between my wife and I on stage, the part where it talks about her weakness. Ready. Okay? (laughs) The part where it talks about her weakness. But again, context is key. Context is key. We're not actually talking about emotional or spiritual strength. I think if we took a straw poll, everyone would, would side with Natalie on emotional and spiritual strength, that I am the weaker one. Goodbye. <laughs> you are the weakest. We're, we're talking about literal strength. Peter is talking about literal strength. And the husband's job to lend that strength to protect and empower his wife instead of harm her. Because again, it was hard to be a woman in first century AD. Some of us are focused on the first part, some on the second part. But I want to highlight the most revolutionary part of this scripture that you'll miss if you're not paying attention. I underlined the second half of verse 7 because that's the part that I want to zero in on. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Equal partner. Equal partner. Jesus elevated women over and over and over and over again to equal standing with men. And Peter is drawing on that time he spent with Jesus and teaching it in 1 Peter. Remember, this was a patriarchal society. And in a lot of ways, in the truest sense of the word, Jesus was the first feminist, lifting women up to equal standing with men. To say that she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life, it would have been revolutionary. It would have changed marriages. It would have changed the church. 
It would have changed society. And that started with Jesus, and Peter is just continuing it here in his letter to the early church. I mean, one of the ways this plays out in our marriage, one of the ways that we keep our marriage holy and set apart is that we refuse to gossip about each other. We won't talk poorly about each other, and we don't gossip about one another. That just tears each other down, and we don't, we don't, we want to always be lifting each other up. As Christian spouses, we have to honor our spouse in public, but also in private. And in those behind-the-scenes conversations, when everyone else is complaining about their spouse or gossiping about what they do or don't do, we maintain honor and love and appreciation for one another so that the enemy never has a place to divide our hearts. It doesn't mean we don't have things we don't talk about face-to-face. Of course we do. And it doesn't mean that we don't have outside people that we need to process with and ask for prayer. Of course we do. This passage was one of those, by the way. We had this to is... talk face-to-face about how we were going to how teach this passage. How are we going to teach this? What are we going to do with this, right? But there's a big difference between seeking help and prayer and knocking down your spouse. Because we were created to be equal partners of God's gift of new life. So let's close just by reminding you again about this entire passage as a whole. Because I know it's a lot of context. I know it's a lot of historical and cultural context and understanding. And and sometimes it's easy actually to get stuck in the small verses compared to maybe the passage as a whole. And so let's finish by zooming out again and remember how Peter wrote this entire passage. He wrote it like an hourglass. Topic, topic, Jesus. Topic, topic. Everything starts with Jesus. Everything comes back from Jesus. We get our witness and we get our example from Jesus. And it's because of Jesus that everything in our lives begins to change. The center of the hourglass is the foundation for this entire message. Jesus never sinned but personally carried our mistakes to the cross. He willingly laid down his life in the face of injustice in order to make all things right. By his wounds, you are healed. And even when we wander, we can find direction and purpose because he is the guardian and shepherd of our souls. When Jesus is at the center of all that you are and all that you do, how does that change your life today? Let's pray.